welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast, where we show you that women are capable of absolutely incredible things with the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. I'm your host, Victoria Smith, and today on the podcast, I'm so excited and honored to be joined by Janice Irwin. If you have yet to be introduced to Janice Irwin, she was elected as the MLA for Edmonton Highlands, Norwood, in 2019. Janice is the critic for status of women and LGBTQ2S plus issues, and she serves as the official opposition deputy whip for the NDP in Alberta. So I think you have the sense that this is going to be an episode that talks about politics. Here's my perspective on it. Um, no matter how you vote, I think there are interesting conversations that we have in this episode. I don't expect that everyone listening to this podcast thinks the exact same way. I hope you don't. I mean, if you look at the very varied guests that we've had from all over the world, from different backgrounds, from different careers, from different life beliefs, I hope you don't think the exact same thing as me or vote the exact same thing, the same way that I do. Ultimately, this is an episode, I think, about how we get more women into politics, because when women are at the table, no matter who you vote for, we see more diversity and more things happen, and we see women in society get lifted up. We talk about how to manage the stressors and pressures placed on women in politics. We talk about, yeah, specifically what Janice and the NDP would do if they were uh, in power, what they would do if they became in power again, sort of how things would shift. We also talk about how to have a bit of a better discourse, right? How it's very hard to be heard. We talk about what happens in those legislative sessions and and how to get past some of that dialogue. We talk about issues that are super close to my heart, like affordable childcare and the difference that it can make in people's lives. And of course, we talk about how Janice got into politics in the first place and her background in education and authentically showing up as yourself, whether in politics or in real life. It was such a fantastic conversation. I was so honored that Janice took time out of her very, very busy day to share with us. So big thank you to Janice Irwin. Again, it doesn't matter how you vote. I I honestly think you will find a lot of value in this episode. So just listen to it with an open mind, with an open heart, regardless of how you show up at the ballot box. Okay, just promise me that. Now, the Girl Ties Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode of the Girl Tries Life podcast is brought to you by World on Fire, a new podcast from CBC Edmonton. World on Fire is a new five-part series that takes you to the front lines of -of out-of-control wildfires in Canada, Australia, and California. Recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, hosts Adrian Lamb and Mike Flanagan look at what it takes to find hope in the midst of fear and destruction and how communities affected by wildfires rebuild. The series examines the high cost that wildfires cause to people's health, homes, and communities. Find World on Fire on the CBC Listen app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at cbc.ca slash worldonfire. This episode is also brought to you by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. Find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. And without further ado, let's head into the interview with Janice Irwin. Well, thank you so much, Janice, for joining me on the podcast. We're so pleased to have you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is uh, this is a real pleasure. So I didn't realize, I mean, I think it's one of those things you don't always know much about people in politics before they entered politics, but I had no idea that you used to be a teacher. So what led you into education? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so I was a teacher uh, in rural Alberta. In fact, some very small towns in rural Alberta. Um, I honestly, I'd always just loved, um, I'd really loved the idea of being a teacher. And, uh, you know, when I was uh, a young person growing up also in rural Alberta, I um, was inspired by a lot of my teachers too. So kind of uh, got me motivated to um, to get out and teach as soon as I could. And I didn't teach for a long time, uh, to be honest, but I, but I did, uh, you know, what happened is I was teaching in rural Alberta. And like I said, I was, you know, I enjoyed it. It was mostly high school social studies. Uh, but the city was calling me back. And so I took a job actually working in education with curriculum um, with the provincial government and uh, ended up staying uh, working there. So I, I did not return to teaching and then ultimately politics. Yeah. And so when you were working with the provincial government, was that when it was the um, conservative? I'm like, what were they it was called that. before the UCP? I'm confused. The, 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 PC, the progressive conservatives, yeah. these guys dropped the progressive, of course. Um, so yeah, I started, uh, it was about 2011. And so that was a PC government at the time. And then in 2015, it became an NDP government and I was uh, still working in the area. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, and it's funny, you and I would have overlapped at the University of Alberta by a couple years. And ironically, I was taking a political science degree. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, except that oh, I, I was, it was fascinating, but to be honest, I found that everyone in my program was like passionate about being the next like conservative prime minister. And I'm like, these are just not my people. <laughs> like, so it was, yeah, I ended up going a different, uh, different route, but left my time at U of A. And what is it like teaching in like rural Alberta? Because I just, I, full disclosure like the kind of like stereotype that you would think of is less progressive less open and that seems very at odds with who you are and what you champion yeah it was you know it was it was tough but I have to admit also like it was um you know really good experience being you know I started teaching I just turned 21 so I was pretty young and uh um so it was a bit of a uh shock going out there and you know my first class had like two 19 year olds in it so it was very uh very very much a shock for me but honestly you know the the kids were generally really good and the communities were were supportive as well but i have to say i wasn't um you know obviously one of the things that kind of defines me as being a, a an openly queer politician and um i was not um i was not out at all at that time and nor i was i was dating men in fact so i was not um, acknowledging that part of my identity so i didn't experience any, experience any issues like that but i you know I've reflected in the legislature a few times since, um, particularly during the Bill 8 debate. And for those listening who who don't know what Bill 8 was, it um, essentially was a piece of legislation that rolled back supports for, um, you know, queer and trans kids in schools uh, through GSAs, made, made getting a GSA harder. And so during the debates on that, you know, I, I reflected a lot in the legislature about the fact that, you know, I know I didn't do more, I didn't do enough to stop homophobia. Um, that I know was rampant in our schools. Like, you know, you would hear kids perhaps say a, 
uh, an offensive slur and just not not do enough. And and so I reflect on that and I reflect on the fact that we didn't have GSAs. And I know there were kids that were struggling in retrospect, right? And I know I was probably struggling too in retrospect, right? So um, it is, you know, like I said, I, I reflect on my time teaching in rural Alberta with with fondness generally, but I also I also know that there's a lot of conservatism out there and there were a lot of things that um, that didn't make it safe necessarily for kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I, I so appreciate that. And it's so funny, it, not funny, haha, but when I was emailing my MLA about Bill 8 and whatnot, and you, what you hear in response is, well, we haven't rolled back those rights. And it just feels very challenging of like, well, what's a fact? <laughs> Like, how do you have conversations when a fact is not a fact? But we'll get into that. Um, I'm really curious, like, you were obviously working on Alberta curriculum. What then shifted into politics? Because it's a big leap. Yeah, so, I mean, a bit of a long story. But, um, you know, I had moved back to Edmonton um, in, like I said, I think 2011. And, uh, you know, just really... um, started wanting to get involved. I was living in the Highlands neighborhood where I'm coming coming to you live from right now, where my office is. And I didn't know a lot of people, but I did kind of start to see a little bit what was happening with the NDP at that time. And um, I recognized at that point that there was going to be a new riding federally that I was living in. Um, it was it was formerly Edmonton East and then became Edmonton Griesbaugh. And I just, I just wondered, I thought like, how could our area be represented by an NDP MLA for so long, yet we constantly re-elected the same conservative MP at the federal level and and so I saw a real opportunity and I also saw a lot of issues that I felt weren't being addressed. Housing was a big one. It was really eye-opening for me to come back from rural Alberta and to see just see firsthand um, the issues uh, with folks experiencing homelessness. I didn't have a car so I was running to and from work every day and I would run along um, for folks who who know Edmonton's LRT system, run along where the stadium LRT is and you see a lot of folks camping and struggling. And I I just thought, how the heck are we not doing more to support housing and those folks experiencing homelessness and and, mental health challenges and and so on. And and that really motivated me to get involved. And so all that to say, I ended up uh, launching a campaign for the federal election Um, in about 2013. I started early, the election was in 2015. And I really, through that, those two years of campaigning, I got to, you know, meet so many community members and um, we really built a strong team of, of supporters and volunteers. Uh, ultimately, we were unsuccessful. We lost by a very slim margin to uh, the Conservative MP who's still representing the area. His name is Kerry Diot. I won't talk too much about him. Um, but uh, but all, that, all that to say, you know, that, that campaign momentum stayed with me uh, after after the loss and when Brian Mason our current M- or our, our previous MLA decided that he wasn't going to run again I had a few fo- folks asking me okay Janice do you think you'd run provincially and it didn't take that much encouraging for me to to uh, throw my hat in the ring oh, I love it well I'm curious because like it seems for women the barriers to get into politics are just much higher like financially getting that support is a lot lower for women. We've had um, volunteers from Ask Her on the podcast before we've had the co-founder of Direct Her on here before and the barriers are just higher and it seems that the scrutiny is higher. So how like what's your vision for how we get more women into politics because when women are more represented we tend to think of the community at, as a whole 
Yeah. Great question, and honestly, it's it's something that I've um, that I've grappled with a lot. Um, you know, I, I have to acknowledge that um, uh, you know I'm I'm someone who comes with with privilege for sure. I'm a white um, cis uh, woman, and uh, you know I have had the fortune of having um, you know well-paying jobs over the years, and so there wasn't as much as a of a financial burden for me. Um, but you're right, that's a, one of the key barriers that stop a lot of women from participating, especially if they're dealing with childcare, with other responsibilities. Um, also, a lot of folks, depending on the job they're working, have to stop have to stop working, or perhaps they're in the public service and they are forced to um, take a leave or whatever it might be. And so that's a huge barrier. Um, and then there's just the, the giant barrier of feeling like you're not good enough or you're not qualified or you're just not not quite ready. And I'm sure you've heard that in some of the other conversations you've had. It's, you know, I always give the example of, I know um, somebody who used to be a can in candidate recruitment with the federal NDP, she would tell these stories about how, you know, she would have conversations with women who were just, they had these extensive resumes, uh, you know, so, so much life experience, um, educational background, like all, all the, all the things lined up for them to be incredible candidates, but they'd, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, I just, I just don't think I'm ready yet. I, I don't think I've got enough experience. I'm not qualified. And she would just shake her head because the next minute she'd have a 19 year old guy come in the office and say, you know what? I, yeah, I think, I think I'm ready. Right. Like, and that's, that's these are true stories, right? Yeah, Where yeah. it's like, why do we, why do we do that to ourselves? And I, I'm guilty too. Like, I know I'm guilty even in the house all the time of, um, saying that I'm not an expert on things and it's like you know we people aren't experts on everything and and you know if you're waiting all the time to to you know if you're if you're someone out there right now listening and you're wanting to get involved in politics but you're you know you're 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 raising all these doubts about yourself I want to just encourage you to say to, to think about the fact that you know what your male counterpart probably isn't having all those same doubts right and so so truly like you know you if if you think you're not and you're not ready, you probably are. And if you think you don't have enough experience, you probably do. And I mean, I started my political involvement pretty young as well. I mean, when I was running federally, I was, um, when I started the campaign, I was, uh, I think I was 29. So, um, 29 or 30. So, you know, I had people question my experience as well, but kept soldiering on, right? Because, you know, even if you are a young person, why, you know, why are you any less qualified to, to represent um, than someone someone who might have a little bit more um, life experience, right? Yeah, it's that imposter syndrome. We seem to hold on to it so tightly <laughs> as women, yeah. I'm curious, if you, if the NDP were in power now or in power in the future, in your role with status of women, like what would you, what would you like to see happen besides like undoing all the junk that's just happened? Like what would you like to see happen? Yeah, besides everything, right? Um, yeah, so uh, lots of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the big ones that's just very fresh in my mind right now is obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic still. We have to remind people that this is still a thing. Um, I think I fear people are forgetting. Yeah. Um, although when the pod podcast comes out, perhaps things will have shifted. Let's let's cross our fingers. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, you know, we need to focus on an economic recovery that helps and supports all Albertans. And, you know, I've raised this in the house a few times. My colleague, Raki Pancholi, who is our children's services critic and, and does a really good job of addressing issues of childcare, she's raised it as well. We're saying, listen, 
we will not have an economic recovery that benefits um, all Albertans if women's needs aren't centered. And that's, of course, things like childcare, um, you know, but that's also things like um, supporting women's reentry back into the back into the economy, not cutting public service jobs like this government has done. Um, you know, not cutting the minimum wage, which they're threatening to do, the list goes on. And so, um, you know, that's, that's one thing for sure. And, and as I've said a few times, I'm, I'm trying to be hopeful that they're going to acknowledge that, but they haven't. I mean, I asked the minister responsible for status of women yesterday about, um, about that very issue, minimum wage. If minimum wage is cut, women will um, disproportionately be impacted negatively by by that change and yet she wouldn't even acknowledge that she wouldn't even talk about those minimum or low wage workers she would she instead talked about high paying jobs for women uh, in the trades which yeah. of course we support that as well but that's not the reality for so many of Alberta's working women right so I mean that's one thing um, you know we know education and healthcare are two areas in which uh, in which women are, are, are mostly employed as well and yet you know, the firing of 20,000 educational assistants in the midst of a pandemic did not help. And of course, the UCP would say that uh, these, you know, these, these EAs weren't needed because school isn't physically in. And that's absolute nonsense because we know those EAs, so many of them were working nonstop to support teachers and students in that transition to online learning, right? So, I mean, truly, Victoria, the list, yeah. I could probably talk to you for hours about the things that we'd be doing differently. And, and I mean, yeah. we saw, we saw how important women's voices at the table were uh, during uh, Rachel Notley's tenure as premier, uh, because she, she, she centered women's voices. She ensured she had a gender, gender parity in her cabinet. She focused on issues like childcare, like a, a, a minimum wage that uplifts all Albertans, right? Like the, yeah. these were the things that were fundamental to her, to her platform. Yeah. And I mean, I've got two small children and, you know, I pay, I pay probably on the lower end of what most people pay for childcare. And it's still with two children in full-time care, $24,000 a year. And I can't help but wow. think, you know, it's a thousand dollars a month per child, right? So I can't help but think if I had $25 a day childcare, how I could be contributing more to the economy, how I could be investing in my RRSP, how I could be saving for their RESPs. And when it's $24,000 a year and I'm on the cheaper end of things, like what a transformation wow. that could make in my life. That's yeah. And, and again, this is our point that like, you know, we're hearing from folks. I know Racky's hearing from folks all the time. I am as well, who are saying like, I can't, why would I go back to work when, you know, I may, I'm in a, perhaps I'm in a, um, in a, as an, I'm working as an essential worker or something like that, yeah. where I'm, I'm making as much as I'm paying in childcare. Yeah. And again, we know the evidence is clear. We see that in Quebec and other jurisdictions where when you invest in affordable quality childcare, women re-enter the workforce and your whole economy uh, is bolstered. So it's, it's common sense, yet this yeah. government is so ideological that they refuse to acknowledge it. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Okay. Um, so the funny thing is a lot of, so I'm a stress reduction coach and yet the area of stress that I still grapple with is politics because it is, you know, it's so close to what you care about and how you live your life, right? That it is inherently stressful. I remember at the last election talking to my doctor, my family doctor, and he was 
prescribing his patients to not watch the news for the couple of days leading up to the election because really? he was like it's raising blood pressure it's unhealthy <laughs> the the stress wow. and tension so i'm curious how if someone who lives in it day in day out how do you manage that stress oh boy victoria it's a really good question and you know i i don't mind being um entirely honest in saying i probably don't do a great job at it um you know, I don't, I, I know I can acknowledge that a challenge I've had over the years uh, has been, you know, being fairly driven and trying, you know, accomplishment focused and all those things that we, we need to, we need to let go of. And so I acknowledge that I probably don't do a good enough job of being, um, of, of achieving work-life balance. I'm trying to be better for sure, um, because I've, you know, I've lived a pretty stressful life over my, uh, over the last, I guess, 15 years, I've been a, um, a working professional, so to speak. So, so admittedly, I'm not the best person to uh, to uh, weigh in on ways to ways to manage stress. But um, one of the things that I do, and it seems minor, but is I really try to be outside as much as I can. So, uh, you know, I've been I get a lot of requests from uh, Zoom meetings and whatnot, and I've started to say to people, "Hey, what if we do a phone call instead?" And often I'll take that call outside. So I'll. I'll stroll, stroll in the sunshine and take that call. Or if it's possible to do so at a physically distanced manner, I'll, um, I'll meet with them in person and go for a walk, you know, just little things like that, where it's, it's a way for me to, to feel a little bit more balanced because I do, I do really love being outside and I really love sunshine. And since we only get heat like two months of the year, uh, I like to, uh, I like to embrace that. So that's yeah, something I'm trying to, say, to do right now. What are you doing in the Edmonton minus 30 winters? <laughs> I know it's yeah I gotta work on that but yeah the sun lamp the heat lamp <laughs> yeah so but you're right I mean you're, you're talking about politics right it's just and and to be honest you know I I I have I'm fairly active as you know on social media and uh and I can admit to you that I do my own social media I know a lot of politicians have have help but it's just something that I've always found is important for me to to, to be my own voice on there and that can be overwhelming too, right? Um, because it's it's nonstop. You know, you're you're getting inundated on various channels, Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, all the time. But the other, I guess, the reason why I raise this is I I get a lot of people who reach out to me on social media, and who are struggling and who are dealing with stress and who are wondering how they can help or what they can do to get involved. And so it's it doesn't necessarily help my stress load, but it does. I find comfort in the fact that, you know, people are reaching out and, and, um, and that I can try to, I can try to help as best yeah. I can. Right. And I mean, like, and there is that ability to help and to give back. And yet it also comes with the, you know, the Twitter trolls and the hate and all of that kind of stuff. So you've got to have a good practice, I think, to filter, filter that out. I'm curious, I think so, as we record this, it's June 19th, uh, Bill 1 passed, and I think a lot of people are feeling kind of helpless as to what to do, because I know I'm probably at like 30 letters to my MLA at this point, and I know he doesn't care like I, that's good perfect but but it's starting to feel like I'm just sending stuff into the void and then you have bill one and it's like well does this make all protests illegal when it pretty much like I've talked to my friends who are lawyers and they're like yeah pretty much possible what can we do to get heard because like I not everyone's in the financial position to donate like how do we break through 
Yeah, and and truly, it's a question I get a lot. And, and with Bill One, um, it, it's so so fascinating about that because it passed with relatively little fanfare a few weeks ago, past third reading, that is, yeah. um, which effectively means it's passed because royal assent, as we know in Alberta, is basically just a rubber stamp. So, um, so past third third reading a few weeks ago, and you know, like I said, little fanfare. Of course, we voted against it, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd posted about it a bit about just how. Um, concerned I was by yeah. it but again we don't have a majority so there's there's not a lot we we can do in the in legislatively in the house but then in the last week or two I guess probably two weeks ago now just been inundated by messages from folks who are saying what can we do how can we stop this bill from passing yeah and uh, <laughs> and it turns out this was because because I kept wondering especially on Instagram I was getting all these young people reaching out saying what can we do? How do we stop this? And I had to keep telling them, sorry, folks, it's already passed. I mean, we, we yeah. voted against it, we fought, but it, it's already passed. Turns out there were um, a number of young, uh, I guess, influencers on Instagram who uh, who were posting videos about it and saying, like, you need to speak out and really giving good explanations about why. Yeah. But uh, it was it was too late. And so I still think, though, I still think, though, there's a real need for folks to continue to speak out. And what you're doing is is a good example, writing, calling your MLA, telling them that this is not OK. Yes, you get that it's passed now, but it's still not OK. Um, and the other thing is very interesting timing on this, because um, there's a protest that's going to happen tomorrow. In fact, and I know this will yeah. this will be past news podcast airs, but um, it's it's interesting to me because I'm going to be there and I'm getting a lot of questions from folks like, OK, if I show up for a protest, will I get arrested? Yeah. And, you know, I, I I won't be I don't want to be held on this, but I, I I'm very doubtful because if we're assembling peacefully, it's it's nonsense. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it could happen. It's unconstitutional, um, this bill, like it doesn't make exactly. sense. Exactly. So, um, you know, I'm encouraging people to. No, you do need to keep speaking out. You do need to keep, if you're able to do so, you need to keep assembling and protesting because that's exactly what this government wants. They want it to have that chilling effect, which it already has, uh, of discouraging people from from using their charter right of yeah. assembling. So it's nonsense. Um, and yeah, of course, the folks are are, uh, are rioting or, or um, protesting in a, I don't want to say criminal manner, but you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're in more jeopardy, absolutely. But the reality is there there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to to you know to let to, to use our our charter given rights now the worry uh well one of the many worries about the bill of course is around critical infrastructure so this bill this bill defines critical critical infrastructure as a number of things um highway roads blah 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 there's a whole list of them but it also leads to interpretation that critical infrastructure that definition can be changed at any time so uh, that's a worry. And of course, we're concerned about um, the impact on Indigenous rights, right? If there are folks who are, who are land defenders and who are um, trying to protect, you know, their, um, their traditional territory, they will likely be um, arrested, right? Uh, and, that's, and that's scary. So this is why I'm encouraging people to continue to keep speaking out, to continue to keep writing their MLAs. And if they're able, and again, that's from a place of privilege because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saying I'm doubtful I'm going to get arrested, but I'm not a racialized person, right? I'm not yeah. someone who uh, runs a stronger risk of, I'm, a, I'm an elected official, right? If they want to arrest me tomorrow, bring it on. But um, I'm going there because I need to 
support folks who don't have that same privilege that I do. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. For those who are listening, like writing to your MLA is not as scary as it sounds. Uh, I, I mean, this is someone that's done it 30 times now. Even talking to them on the phone is not as scary. I know I had a conversation with my MLA that didn't go terribly well because again it was like we couldn't agree what was a fact and that's frustrating but keep sending the letters like keep sending the letters I know when I called my MLA about bill 22 you know I was saying it's about terminating (laughs) you know the elections commissioner and they said well that's NDP language and I said minister I've hit command control f on my document and it's found 22 times in a document your party wrote and it was like just no acknowledgement of that so I was like okay (laughs) there's that yeah and I mean you know just just to just to add on to that I mean I do get people saying well does it even make a difference if we write our MLA and you know what it's it's fair to question if that's going to make a difference but I think there is power in inundating MLAs UCP MLAs when they're pushing through these pieces of legislation that are so harmful and it can be emails, it can be calls, it can be physical letters if you're someone who likes to do that. Um, and it can be showing up in protest as well, right? I yeah. mean, there's, I think there's power in that for sure. Yeah, I love it. Um, I'm curious because I think there's, there's value in learning from our opponents, so to speak, of like what they do well and what we can learn from that. One of the criticisms I think the NDP did get when they were in charge was of moving very slowly on a lot of issues, mainly due to consultation, right? Because we need to, consulting is important. But on the flip side, the UCP moves so quickly. Do you think if the NDP get in again, that there might be some sort of middle ground you would reach of moving a little bit faster? Or is there anything that you've learned from the UCP that you would try? Oh boy, that's a good question. Yeah, and I mean, I don't have the benefit of having sat in governments, so um, you know, so I I know that there, you know, there were things that the NDP did that I wasn't happy with, or there were areas where I wish they would have worked on, and I don't mind saying that because, of course, we need to be we need to be critical. But I also wasn't at the table, um, you know, to hear the reasons behind some of these mm-hmm. decisions that were made. So I I'm not sure, but you know, I I have seen a pattern with this UCP government in the year that I've been in office of them not consulting. The number of times we've stood in the legislature and uh, and asked them, who have you consulted with? Name of the bills that I've spoken with. It's It's been a common question, the Mental Health Amendment Act. You know, this is an opportunity for them, if they're going to make a change to this legislation, that's an opportunity for them to consult with folks with lived experience, you know, those who've struggled with mental health, those who work on the front lines of mental health, and none of them could answer that question for me. The Victims of Crime Fund, which is Bill, I'm getting some of the bills confused in my head, I believe that one's Bill 16, uh, same thing, they're, they're basically rating a, a fund that was set up specifically for folks who've been victims of horrendous crimes, they're rating that and to allocate that money elsewhere, like to policing. And you ask them, okay, again, who, with whom have you consulted? Please be specific. Have you spoken with survivors of domestic or sexual violence? And yeah. again, they, they don't, they can't answer that. And those are just two. I mean, I could, I could yeah. spend the next hour talking about all the bills that they've not consulted on, or if they have, they're not standing up and telling us. Yeah. Right. And so I think you're right. I mean, I think there were examples where um, perhaps we, we consult, I don't want to say over consulted, cause I think that's, that's pretty hard to do, but you know, where um, we wanted to ensure that there were yeah. voices at the table. 
we wanted to ensure that there were diverse voices right so that you know when we can you know if it's if it's a piece of legislation that impacts black and indigenous and people of color voices like bill one that that we would have we would have consulted yeah. not that we would have ever passed that bill but you know or, or introduced yeah. it no way but you know we would have ensured that any 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 groups that would be um, disproportionately impacted would have been consulted right yeah. like it it's a no-brainer yeah i i think one of the things that can um i i don't know if it's ever going to change or it's just the culture of politics but when i watch the sessions it often just feels like it's parties jabbing back and forth to each other and i don't know how much constructive work comes from those but you tell me like when i when i watch these videos online it feels a bit disheartening of of both sides to be honest of like are we even hearing each other if all we're doing is do you know what i mean yeah and you know it's it's not to um not to minimize your concern but it's it's certainly kind of a hallmark of, of yeah. um, our westminster system in which we have this question period that has historically been theatrical yeah. right uh, and it's unfortunate and you know i i'm not the biggest fan a lot of the time because uh you know it's 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 set up uh it's it's not set up in 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 the in the most perfect way that's a fact um but i think one of the things that i've i've enjoyed about you know asking those questions is you know we do we give the opportunity and i'll give the example from yeah. yesterday i give the minister three opportunities to acknowledge minimum wage workers who are women and she never did she could have at least given an yeah. a, a, an offhand you know comment but she kept coming back to clearly what was her messaging of the day which was about supporting women in high paying jobs in the trades yeah. not all women can get into those jobs yeah. or get into the women building futures program which is a great program don't yeah. get me wrong but so that's an example where i can now go on social media and say look like a whole lot of women are going to be impacted if we cut the minimum wage why won't the minister even acknowledge this issue yeah and so you're right i mean i'm, I'm clipping it i'm not holding uh, including the whole thing mainly just because of time um but anybody can go back and look and answer yeah, yeah. and see what the conversation was right so you're right i mean it's no question period is not the most constructive way to get things done but i do think um i do think there's power in um the social media side of things yeah. because i do i get people especially on instagram who would have never tuned in to watch yeah. the legislature online or would have never known that there's a tv channel they can tune into that are seeing those clips for the first time and they're seeing what it looks like for an mla to ask questions or for, and for a minister to well not answer questions uh in the yeah. legislature yeah well i before before we go to the five final five i just want to say thank you for all the work that you do i think you are so eloquent and you are just really fighting the good fight. Uh, so I really appreciate that. So these final five are just like quick fire. Um, what are the things or the projects that get you fired up in a good way? Oh boy, like work related or personal, personal related either. Yeah. Things that get me fired up. Oof. Gosh, you know, I, I think, um, I think honestly, from a work perspective, uh, you know, I can have a really hard day and feel, be feeling tired and maybe sorry for myself. And then, you know, get a message from someone who's like, hey, Janice, I'm, you know, I'll give you an example. I, 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 I spoke in the legislature about teachers and just, you know, acknowledging how exhausted they are and how they're trying to balance so many things right now. And from that video, I just had a lot of teachers reach out and say, like, thanks. I feel like I'm being heard. Um, I feel like, you know, this government's not acknowledging us, but you, you folks are. And so it's things like that where like, okay, 
yes, work is hard, but um, it's worth it, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so we've talked about going outside, but what are some of your other quick go-to strategies for handling stress? Yeah, so definitely going outside, but also um, being active. Like I really like to um, to jump on my bike. I try to drive as infrequently as I can, um, go for walks. We've got a beautiful river valley here. So um, I just welcome any opportunity uh, that I that I can actually, um, you know, get outside and, and stroll and try to try to not look at my phone uh, the whole time. But yeah, those I think would be my, my go-tos for sure. And also like, especially now that the weather's warmer, um, try to connect with friends, you know, in a distanced way and, uh, you know, invite them for, for walks and, and talks as well, because yeah. I find that can be, I find that can be helpful. A hundred percent. What's the best life lesson you've learned or advice that you've been given? Oh boy. Yeah. You know, I think it, because it's kind of relevant to what, um, what you and I have been talking about is just, it's easier said than done, but just, you know, trying to, you know, like not let the, you know, don't sweat the small stuff kind of thing. Uh, I know it's cliche, but it's, it is one of those things where I know too often I, I let small minor things really weigh on me. And so trying to ground myself every time I get to one of those positions where I feel like overwhelmed by something that's seemingly minor, like, Janice, is this going to really matter in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year, right? And um, yeah, it's like when you're lying in bed and you you just can't stop thinking about this one thing. It's like, gosh, this is so inconsequential in the scheme of things. But when you're in the moment, and especially if you're, you know, if you're struggling with um, stress or with mental health, with depression, like, gosh, I've been there and I know what it's like when things just feel so overwhelming, right? And every every little thing um, that gets piled on just is a, is another um, uh, weight on your shoulders. Right. So yeah. trying to, yeah, trying to really remind myself of, of what matters, I guess, in life uh, yeah. on, a, on a daily basis. The final question, Janice, is what does it mean to you to live your best life? Ooh, good question. Uh, you know, I think um, one of the things that I've been really privileged uh, over the last number of years is to really like become comfortable with my own sexuality. And, uh, you know, there would have, there was a time not that long ago where, you know, I, I, I shied away from, from being like visibly or openly queer and, uh, you know, it's, yeah. And it was, it was tough for sure. And so, you know, it's something that I embrace now and, you know, it's not the only piece of my identity, not at all, but I, I I've learned, especially since being in office that, being out and being visible and being vocal has meant a lot for other people. And, and, you know, I'll get messages, I'll get message from messages from young people who are struggling with their sexuality, who say like, you know, just, it means so much for them to see a visibly um, queer politician or, you know, I'll be wearing my suit and tie in the legislature and somebody will comment like, yeah, that's, it's cool that you, you know, you, you present how you feel and, uh, and you're not, you're not ashamed of that. Right. Because I do know, I do, you know what it was like to struggle. And I do know that so many people aren't safe to live their best lives right now. And so if I can help in any way, um, I want to. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Okay. I hope you found that interview as inspiring as I did. Now, again, regardless of how you vote, here's just a few of my main takeaways. Get involved. If you are not pleased with what is happening, 
regardless of where you are in the world, right? Write to your elected representative, right? Some of you are listening from Ireland. Some of you are listening from Canada. Some of you are listening from the U.S. doesn't matter. If you're not happy with what's happening, write to your elected official. Also, make sure you're registered to vote, right? Uh, you know, there's the saying that you can't complain if you don't vote. Well, I don't think that's entirely true. We can clearly complain no matter what. But if you want to see change, vote. And if you're comfortable getting involved, whether that's through volunteering or uh, donating money, do that as well. But again, whatever you can do, do. And I find from a stress standpoint, just taking some sort of action reduces my stress. And I'm willing to bet that it's going to do the same for you. So big thank you to Janice Irwin. Now, last little announcement. If you're participating in the Stress Less Habits Challenge, you'll have noticed that August's uh, habit was about getting a great evening routine developed. So I would love to hear over on Instagram at stresslessladies what kinds of things you have been implementing. I have been using my AccuSpike mat. I am trying to keep my phone out of my bedroom and all of those good things. So I would love to hear what's working for you. And if you haven't joined the Stress Less Habits Challenge, go to stresslesshabits.com. Com. Have a fantastic day, everyone. Be kind to one another. Uh, stay off Twitter if that makes you angry. All the good things. Have a fantastic week and we'll chat next time.